episode of Community Matters Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss issues important to managing and governing condos, cooperatives, and homeowner associations. My name is Tony Campisi, Executive Director of the Keystone Chapter of Community Associations Institute. Anyone listening to this podcast is very likely aware of the tragic collapse of the Champlain Tower South condominium building in Surfside, Florida that occurred a few months ago. The discussion that we're focusing on today intends to serve as a conversation regarding the obligations of elected homeowner leaders while avoiding any insinuation as to the causes or events leading up to that tragic incident. And before we start our discussion, we do want to extend our sincerest condolences to all those impacted by this tragic event. The topic of condo and building safety will dominate the conversations of community association practitioners for many months and years to come, as we all work to ensure something like this never happens again. CAI's national organization assembled various task forces that are working on a series of public policies to address issues such as building inspections and maintenance and reserve funds and studies. This podcast is intended to be a conversation about the obligations of elected homeowner leaders when it comes to the various issues involved in this topic. Today's guests include Sarah Austin Esquire with the Austin Law Firm, LLC, Marshall Grainer, Esquire, CCAL, with Grainer and Grainer PC, and Stefan Richter, Esquire, CCAL, from Clemens, Richter, and Reese. And for our listeners, CCAL stands for the College of Community Association Lawyers. Welcome to Community Matters Podcast, and please tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. Thank you, Tony. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I am Sarah Austin. I'm with Austin Law Firm, LLC. We represent associations throughout South Central Pennsylvania on various and uh, sundry, difficult and easy matters. I am uh, happy to be here with this panel today. Hi, Tony, this is Marshall Grainer. I'm delighted to be here as well. As you know, I'm an attorney, also the CCAL fellow. I'm a member of the Pennsylvania Legislative Action Committee. I'm a delegate to that. I'm also a licensed real estate broker, a former community association property management company owner. And these days, most of what I do is to represent developers and association boards in interpreting and drafting association declarations. Hello, everyone. My name is Stefan Richter. Um, as of my colleagues are, uh, I'm also uh, happy to be part of this discussion. Uh, my practice uh, at Clemens Richter and Reese is limited to representation of condominium and homeowners associations. And um, this particular topic is obviously uh, timely and uh, I look forward to the discussion over the next couple of minutes with uh, these well-qualified colleagues. Well, again, thank you all for joining me for this conversation. One of the topics that first comes to mind when talking about obligations within a community association is the various rights and responsibilities of those that are elected to serve as board members, including perhaps one of the most important responsibilities, and that is fiduciary duty of board members. Marshall, let me start with you. Can you discuss this and how it may or should impact the decisions of members of an association board? 
So we're going to start out our conversation with a complicated and unusual word, fiduciary. Um, so what is a fiduciary? Because we hear this all the time. There's even a, a TV ad where somebody says, I'm not just a this, I am a fiduciary. Well, a fiduciary is a trustee or a guardian, somebody who's responsible for other people's usually funds or property. So what this means is that when a board member is elected, they become a fiduciary, they become responsible for other people's property. In our case, the property of the association. This is right in our statutes. It says that a board member or officer is a fiduciary. They must act in the best interest of the association, not in their own best interest. And this is a real key and something that I know my colleagues and I see all the time. You must act in the best interest of the association. You have to use care. You have to be reasonable. You have to act as a prudent person would. And you have the right and actually the responsibility to rely on information that comes from experts, lawyers, accountants, engineers, architects. And that's basic, the basics of fiduciary responsibility. Colleagues, anything to add? I think the most important uh, thing to remember is that what you said earlier is you're, you're acting not in, in your capacity on your own, but for other people. So that you are in charge of and trusted with the care of the association's best interest. Yeah, I think that was a really good explanation, Marshall. It doesn't mean that people lose, of course, their ownership, their interest, you know, in their unit or anything, and they're still owners, but they have that higher level of responsibility, of trust, of duty to represent everybody. Stefan, let's talk a bit about transition studies and reserve studies. These two types of studies are not the same thing but both are critically important for community associations as, as well as structural evaluation. So can you uh, address those two types of studies? Yeah, I think it's important to get some of the terms down. So in my mind, a transition study is really an independent evaluation of the quality and design of initial construction. It's a document that's prepared to confirm that what the developer promised is in fact delivered. It consists and is prepared by an engineer to do an engineering review and evaluation of the initial design and construction of the various components of the association. So this includes common infrastructure, stormwater management systems, and building components of a community. We're going to address this in a little bit, but uh, it, most of these transition studies are generally geared toward and limited to components for which the association will ultimately have responsibility. Um, in a perfect world, the transition study creates a punch list of deficiencies, which, is then, uh, which then forms the basis of negotiations with a developer. Uh, in some cases, of course, it reveals significant defects, which are thereafter subject of litigation. The word transition is really only used because of timing. It's still an engineering study, but is performed close in time to the completion of the community by the developer. Engineering studies are routinely sought by associations long after construction is completed to evaluate various components uh, which may be failing. Whether and to the extent a structural evaluation is appropriate or necessary really depends on the components, the construction, and the age of the association. 
Transition studies generally describe their scope and within them recommend further structural evaluations or invasive testing, or they may not recommend them. So structural evaluations are not limited to high-rise concrete or steel, um, as may be necessary during transition or any time thereafter. Stormwater management systems, roads, decks, and many other building components similarly have structural aspects. So for that reason, it is important to work with an engineer to determine whether a structural engineering study of a specific item of construction is indicated during transition or as the community ages. Compare that to a reserve study. A reserve study is a budgeting tool. While a reserve study is routinely prepared by an engineer, its main purpose is to evaluate the condition and lifespan of a specific components or all of the components and installations for which the association is responsible and to prepare a schedule of funding, which must then be collected over time to assure that ongoing maintenance and ultimately re the replacement of these components are properly funded. For example, if the association is responsible for roof replacement, this study or a, trans a reserve study will evaluate the condition of the roof, will determine whether it has X number of years anticipated of remaining life, and finally will determine the expected cost of roof replacement at the end of that time period. And it will recommend funding methodologies so that the expense can be met. Reserve studies therefore not only take into account the condition and quality of the relevant component, but also the anticipated cost of materials, labor, and inflation. For that reason, it's important to update a reserve study every three to five years to one, confirm that the component is not failing prematurely and is meeting its expected lifespan, and two, that the prediction as to anticipated costs and inflation remain valid. Of course, the study will also confirm the amount of monies in reserve and whether the association has allocated and collected reserves as may previously have been recommended or anticipated. So that, that's a big mouthful, but I think those are the three distinctions. That is a big mouthful, but uh, good information. Sarah, um, how does one choose an expert to help a board with things like reserve studies? There's lots of service providers out there. How does an association board find the right expert for their unique needs? That's a good question, Tony. I think the, the, the initial question, of course, is what are they looking for? For what do they need the expert? Stefan just explained the differences between the various things that engineers or other experts can do. In this case, I think we're really concentrating on engineers. We're looking at reserve studies, transition studies, structural evaluations, those types of things. So it's mostly engineers. Um, I would encourage associations to first start with CAI and look at the educated business partners. Um, there is a list that CAI has. These people understand what is needed by community associations. They work with community associations. They are really um, the best ones. If, however, there is not someone on that list, um, then certainly I would contact perhaps neighboring associations or have your property manager contact other property managers, have your attorney contact others. It's really good to get referrals, but you wanna make sure that you get somebody who knows what they're doing. You can't just go to any engineer 
and say, I need a reserve study or a transition study and expect them to come in necessarily and give you the product you're looking for. I think it's important to point out that this is, these are specialized uh, reports that are being created and not just any engineer. There are some wonderful engineers out there who do great work, but would have no idea when they come in to do a structural study or a reserve study, you know, what does that mean? So having somebody who's done it before is really a key. Otherwise the board is going to be instructing the expert and not vice versa. And that's, and, and that's exactly a good point. And because of that, the associations can't just shop by price. Um, you know, the, the price may actually for, be a little bit higher if we're looking at engineers who are familiar with this context, they have the added experience, um, maybe it's a different type or additional education. I don't know, I'm not suggesting that there's a higher cost to using these persons who know what they're doing. I'm just suggesting that associations do not just go with the lowest cost. So does the board then have a duty to rely on the advice of experts, uh, Stefan? And, and what is the consequence if they do not? And let me just add to that, following on, on what Marshall just said, that certain, let's take engineers for a second. Uh, certain engineers are have specialized knowledge in the unique needs of a condominium building. What if the board relies on, on, a, on an engineer that doesn't have that specialized knowledge? You, answer, you, you asked me a couple of questions, so let me ask, answer the first one first. And, and as Marshall stated, boards have a fiduciary obligation to act in the best interest of the association. And the, the, the Uniform Acts actually clearly state that in, in the performance of those duties that boards are required to exercise such care including reasonably inquiry, skill, and diligence as a person of ordinary prudence would under similar circumstances. Essentially, what this means is that boards are required or encouraged to seek the independent advice of subject matter experts on subject matters that are beyond their expertise. So if you're not an engineer on the board, you should get an engineer. Um, of course, the board's engineer shouldn't be the association's engineer, but that's another topic. But in the same way that a board will resort to a lawyer for legal advice, a board should rely on an engineer and a reserve analyst for construction on long-term budgeting advice. So to answer your question, yes, I believe that the duty to exercise due diligence often requires the retention of experts. And the Uniform Act specifically empower and enumerate that reliance on experts is permitted. Well, and it's not only permitted, but it's it's encouraged and it and it gives a certain amount of absolution to the board. Uh, if, if they make a mistake in an action, but they've done it relying upon an expert, then the board is not gonna be held responsible for that, the expert will be. So that's, that's important. So the reliance, the reliance really has three functions. First of all, you're, you're getting good advice, or hopefully you're getting good advice. Second function is that the retention of an expert's evidence is that you are in fact doing your due diligence. You're, farming out certain work, which is beyond your expertise. And third, I think that the decision upon which um, the expert's advice is based should be insulated from or should withstand legal challenge under the business judgment rule. I think those are the, the three benefits of re retaining and relying upon the advice of an expert. And I think the opposite is true. You asked me what, what happens if we don't. 
well, if we don't get an expert or we get the, the wrong expert, then we're not getting advice that we need. We haven't done our due diligence and our business judgment may not be protected because we haven't done our due diligence. Protected from what, Stefan? Well, I think there's two protections. One is, is there individual liability of, from, of a board member for breaching the fiduciary obligation? And the second is, is the association potentially re, uh, protected from liability for following the advice of an expert? Of course, the advice, the reliance has to be reasonable. So you have to have hired the correct expert uh, who you reasonably believe has the expertise necessary to give you advice. And just a little bit of difference there, Stefan, because you touched on two things, the potential liability of the board member and also the association. A lot of governing documents, specifically bylaws, contain an indemnification provision from the association to the board member. Um, and a lot of times there is DNO insurance or um, some other rider or something in place to, to provide that indemnification um, obligation and the money that goes along with it. What happens here as part of the fallout that you discussed is if there is personal liability, if the person has breached the um, fiduciary duty, if there's not reasonable reliance, if they didn't get the expert, something like that, then that indemnification is not going to happen because there's going to be something in the policy that's going to say they have to have been within their fiduciary duty. So that's where the personal liability that you talked about comes in. And then, you know, it's looking at their assets or their personal insurance. So, so let me just jump in and add something because I didn't say up front, I've been on the board of associations and I don't know if my two colleagues have been. As a matter of fact, I've been on 26 association boards because I was involved in a family home building company and as the youngest, they put me in there. Uh, so I am very keenly aware of the possibility of being personally responsible if something goes wrong when you're on a board. And for all of our board members who are listening to this podcast, uh, you are, I'm sure, aware that you have directors and officers insurance and you wanna make sure that you do the things necessary to protect yourself and your personal assets from a mistake. It's important to follow the advice of experts. I think we haven't talked about that. Is not, not only should you retain the expert, but you can't ignore what he tells you or she tells you. So that leads perfectly into my next question, Stefan. Um, a board hires an expert, the expert, gives advice, how does one document what the expert says, or maybe more importantly, what the expert does not say? Marshall, how should a community association board approach this? How should they document advice not given or perhaps advice not taken? I can't tell you how many boards I deal with don't take minutes of meetings, don't have resolutions, votes, and do the things that a corporation is supposed to do to document what they do. If you wanna protect yourself as a board member, especially on key votes of major expenses and major decisions, you need to write it down in the minutes of the meeting and make sure that those minutes are accurate. Um, many associations don't even keep minutes or if they do, it's the property manager's notes while they were doing running the meeting and doing a bunch of other things as well. So 
whether you're going to follow the advice or not, and I suggest you do, um, it should be in the minutes. If you're not going to follow the specific advice of an expert who's been hired by the association to render advice, you better have some darn good reasons. And again, you wanna have those in writing in the minutes of the meeting and explain why you've decided to override the expert that you brought in and paid for to rely upon. And if you've decided not to do it only because of cost, or if you've decided to do it because two neighbors are threatening to sue if you do, um, maybe you need to rethink it before you write it down. If you think you're gonna be embarrassed about putting it in the minutes, you probably should be. I think one other thing to, to um, supplement what Marshall just said as far as board protection and making sure that they have appropriate minutes is the advice that you get from the expert, make sure you get it in writing. Um, you should make sure that you are getting a written report from your expert. And that report will normally contain what the parameters are, what they inspected, what they were asked to do, and what they were not asked to do and did not inspect. So that way there's no question later as to the scope of that undertaking. You know, you know there's an important statute that a lot of our property managers and boards don't pay attention to, and that is the nonprofit corporation law. Uh, Pennsylvania has a nonprofit corporation law. Most associations are corporations, not all. And there's a lot of guidance in there and there's a lot of protection in there for board members. There is a section 5713 that talks about personal liability of directors. And it says a lot of what we've just been saying, you can rely, but it's a breach of your responsibility if you self deal without telling everybody that you're doing something where you're getting a profit where you willfully don't act correctly, which is you know, unlikely, but how about being reckless? Is not following the advice of an expert recklessness? If it is, then board members may be personally responsible for the outfall and don't wanna harp on it too much, but what happened in Surfside, um, you know, is their board member responsibility for not acting on expert opinions we don't know yet could be. Let's talk about the board's duty in these situations. Stefan, is their duty limited to just the common elements? Tony, that's a great question, which is generally we an answer when we don't have the uh, a good answer to give. And it, it, it depends. I think in most cases, a transition and an engineering study is going to be geared toward common elements and toward uh, components for which the association is ultimately responsible. You know, Tony, a common element and the responsibility of the association do not necessarily coincide. For example, an association may be responsible for replacement of a roof that's part of a unit, uh, and therefore that roof will be included in its, hopefully in its transition study and in future reserve studies. The, the Uniform Acts permit the associations to institute, defend, or intervene in litigation or administrative proceedings uh, on its own behalf and on behalf of two or more unit owners on, on, a matting, on a matter infecting the community or the condominium, which means that the board is indeed empowered to take on um, construction defect matters, for example, um, that only govern the units. 
the way that this usually comes up is the association will have a transition reserve study uh, prepared. It will engage an engineer. The engineer will go essentially through the documents and will separate the unit components from the association components and will, in most cases, only look at the association common element for components or any of those for which the association will have future maintenance and repair responsibility. Um, and in that case, it's important to say, look, the association's transition study is only going to take care of these things and look at these things. You're on your own for everything else that's not included, including in the unit. Invariably though, whether that is uh, intended or not, the transition engineer will walk through, we'll look at grading and drainage issues, and we'll note that the, the unit decks, for example, that are clearly the responsibility of the unit owner, don't have any lag bolts in them or not sufficient number of lag bolts in them. So the engineer will do one of two things. It will say, I noticed these lag bolts are missing. I recommend greater inspection, or they'll actually go ahead and inspect them and say, I found that the lag bolts are missing in all of these decks and you need to take a look at it. Clearly, once the association has that information, it needs to share that with the unit owners and take care of it. I'm not sure that that's a really good answer to your question, but it really depends on what the inspection is, what the components are that the association has responsibility for, and how these inspections are going to be conducted. And many association reserve studies will include a, a unit owner survey that the engineer will send out and say, hey, do you have problems with your unit? Let's take a look at everything. Tell me what, you, tell me what you've experienced and we will take a look at uh, and do sample inspection of roofing, of siding, of stucco, of applied stone, of, of concrete issues, of, of, of deck structure. Uh, and certainly uh, many associations will take on more responsibility rather than less responsibility, especially during the transition process because it doesn't want to capture anything that is systemic to the association. You know, an isolated uh, missing lag bolt is not a problem. Uh, when it's everywhere, that's a problem. Yeah, I've seen a number of transition study companies that as a additional cost, but not a particularly large additional cost, will go inside the dwelling units, not all of them, but a representative sampling of them to check for various things that might be common or might be affected by common elements. They may go into an attic, they may uh, take a look at walls and, and places where there may be water infiltration. Uh, and I think that's a good way to get another set of eyes inside some of the homes. Yeah, I was actually um, gonna get into that a little bit. And I think you're both exactly right. Associations though, when they get some type of transition or other study like that need to be careful that they're not stepping too far into the literal unit boundaries. They don't want um, any owner to come in and think that the association is now taking responsibility at that time or any future time for maintenance, upkeep, repair, replacement of anything within the unit boundaries. But I think you're absolutely right, Marshall, if those studies are talking about things that are um, either um, common elements, limited common elements, or can affect or be affected by common or limited common elements, then it's certainly reasonable to be included within um, some kind of transition or reserve or structural study. And if, if items with the unit are noted or part of the study, then certainly you need to decide whether the association will take those items on. 
uh, or merely inform the unit owners that the problem has been found and you need to contact the developer, make a, a warranty claim. So yes, the information needs to be, and I hate this word, transparent. Uh, you need to community, communicate what you know. And that's no matter what time. And what we're talking about, we're focusing a lot um, around the transition timing, but it could be you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whenever down the road, if something happens that the association gains this knowledge um, and it affects a unit, I think that it, it, again, it's still good to be transparent and they should absolutely make that information known to the owners. So wrapping all this up, Marshall, we often hear from homeowners or from some boards that their goal is to not increase monthly or annual assessments. It's, it's like the tax argument. Everyone wants their taxes to remain low, but they also want the roads fixed and the bridges to be structurally sound. Homeowners might consider it a good thing if their, if their assessments never go up, but is it? Well, it might be, but unlikely. Uh, the fact is that costs go up and buildings and improvements age. As they age, it's more expensive to repair and replace. And um, as the costs go up, it's more expensive to replace. So um, I've seen associations that tout the fact that our assessments haven't gone up in 10 years. I would be very concerned if I were representing a buyer moving into that community. It may be that they had a one-time windfall. It may be that a new manager came in and was able to cut the insurance bill by 35%. I've seen those things happen and that's great. But the fact is that as we know, costs go up. So to just be looking at the dollars without the services doesn't make sense to me. Uh, colleagues, what do you think about that? Is it okay just to keep the fees the same forever? Isn't that a great thing? It feels very good. And I've been at a lot of annual meetings where uh, the announcement that the fees are not going up is followed by clapping. And I have the same response because, you know, it costs what it costs to maintain a, 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 an association. And, and that cost is never decreasing. So unless um, there is some magic in there, uh, the, the, the refusal to increase assessments is almost always a mistake. I, I think that it is. Um, sometimes, not often, but a lot of times also followed up um, by an unfortunate need for a special assessment when something happens. And nobody likes to say those words. Um, nobody likes to have to be the board that imposes a special assessment, but you can't be proud of keeping costs down if you're not funding what may be coming in the future. And again, I agree with Marshall. If somebody, if you represent a potential buyer of one of these units in, in one of these communities, you're looking at your resale certificate and what are the capital reserves and you're looking at age and what might be needed and you kind of do some calculations in your head. And now you're going to say to your client, wow, you're going to probably need to be paying for new roofs on some or all of these units or new landscaping or whatever the um, capital expenses in the future. And there's not enough in the capital reserve. So you're gonna be looking forward to a special assessment. And there are some associations out there, especially old ones that have limits in the documents on how much assessments can go up or how much of a special assessment you can have. 
if you have those in your documents, I would say run to your attorney and try to deal with those clauses before you have an emergency, because it will be ugly. I've seen that. Well, this has been a really informative conversation. Let me thank each of you for joining me today for this episode of our podcast. As I said at the start, this conversation is going to be ongoing for months and in fact years as the industry deals with the issues surrounding the tragic collapse in Florida. And we will likely revisit these topics in future podcasts and in educational sessions for members of CAI. For more resources and best practices on managing and governing your condominium, cooperative or homeowners association, please contact CAI or visit our website at www.cai-padelvale.org. Thanks for listening.